Father, we pray that we would be a, a church that would fulfill our God-given call. Or that you would just allow each one of us individually to accomplish what you have made us to be and called us to do. And as a church, Lord, I pray that you would just empower us today because we've been here to, to more effectively accomplish that call. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's this guy, and he was just walking down the street after a rain. And as he's walking down the street, he came across a puddle. And in the puddle, he saw a frog. And he thought, you know, my grandson might like that frog. So he reached down and picked up the frog. And all of a sudden, the frog started talking to him. The frog said, kind sir, I want you to know that I'm not really a frog. I'm actually a beautiful young princess, and some spell has overtaken me. And if you would but kiss me, I would turn back into this beautiful young princess. I'd return to my, my palace, my kingdom, and all of my treasures, and I would give you treasures without measure. Well, the old man just put the frog in his pocket. Kept on walking down the street, and all of a sudden that frog started jumping all over in his pocket. He put it back, picked it back out, and looked at the frog, and the frog said, Kind sir, thank you again for rescuing me from the puddle, but I, again, I don't know if you heard me, but I am a beautiful young princess. Some sort of spell has overtaken me. If you but kiss me, I'd return to my kingdom and my palace and my riches, and I'd give you treasures without measure. The old man said, I heard you the first time. I just would rather have a talking frog. Well, maybe some of us are a bit like that frog. You know, I think we, we know that we really were made for something much better than how we are existing. And every once in a while, some opportunity will come and we'll think, this is it. This is my chance to make that powerful transition into what I'm really supposed to be, what I'm really called to do, and somehow it doesn't come about. And we feel a bit like that frog in that old man's pocket. And we start to think, this is it. This is where I'm trapped. Something got a hold of me and I'm stuck. The problem is many of us begin to think, <clears throat> well, it is what it is. <clears throat> and we just accept it. Well, today I want, my goal is to convince you, if that's you, to think differently about yourself and about your future. You know, we are all, as followers of Christ, we have been pulled into this upward high calling I mean, we are sons and daughters, think about this, sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we actually, whether or not you know it or not, we actually carry within ourselves a DNA that has a track record of accomplishing mind-boggling things throughout history. And that same DNA in those men and women who've gone before us who follow Christ, that same DNA is running through us, is running through our veins. You know, there is an old church in England that has a plaque on it and it says this. In the year 1653, when all things sacred in the kingdom were profaned and defiled, this church was built to do the best of things in the worst of times. You know, I want you to know that same spiritual DNA 
that was behind the writing of that plaque is running through us. I mean, that DNA is in each one of us. I believe that Grace Community Church has been built to do the best of things in the worst of times. I'm not talking about a building because the church isn't a building. The church is a people. But I believe that this church has been built to do the best of things in the worst of times. And our goal is to keep getting, how can we get better at doing the best of things in the worst of times? All of us, individually and all of us together. Well, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote an epistle, a letter, to young Timothy who he had left in Ephesus to put things in order in the church, urging him to lead that church in a way that you could actually say, in a way that would accomplish the best of things in the worst of times in Ephesus. And so far, we've seen the kinds of instructions that he, Paul has given to Timothy in order to accomplish that. <clears throat> in chapter 1, the main goal, chapter 1, was he exhorted Timothy to guard the truth, stand on the truth, fight for the truth, and make sure to pass that truth on to the next generation. Then we get to chapter 2, and Paul urges Timothy to set things in order in the public worship gathering of the church. And then in chapter 3, we saw him tell Timothy how to set up qualified spiritual leadership in the church. What for? Well, so that church could accomplish the best of things in the worst of times. Chapter 3, interestingly enough, in 1 Timothy in our study, actually ends with a reference to the church as the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And then and the contrast is chapter 4 begins with a reference to false teachers and liars who tell their lies. So what is Paul talking about in chapter 4? Let me just kind of give you an overview before we jump into it. On the one hand, <clears throat> there are people who are abandoning the faith. People who are in the church who are, have left the truth that they were taught and are beginning to embrace falsehood. By the way, that is epidemic in our country, by the way. I mean, people who are abandoning the faith in America and are embracing falsehood is epidemic. Well, it's epidemic in Ephesus, so it's a great thing for us to learn from. That's the first thing he's going to address. There's a second thing he's going to address, and that is that the people in the church we're not, they're beginning to question Timothy's teaching on two parts, questioning his teaching because he was so young and questioning his teaching because they didn't have confidence he was actually telling the truth. How could they have that confidence? So actually there are two topics that Paul is going to develop. First, he's going to talk about false teaching, how to detect it and how to expose it. Then he's going to talk about what effective Christian leadership looks like <clears throat> in the church. So let's jump into it. First Timothy chapter 4, first three verses. First Timothy 4, 1, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars 
seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, certain foods, which God had created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So the key statement in this paragraph is this, in spite of the church's role as the guardian of the truth in chapter 3, some will still abandon the faith. That was happening then and it still happens today. Now, he actually points out that the cause of this error, of this false teaching, actually has three, three parts to it. The first cause of error, he says, is diabolical. That behind the false teacher's teaching is the activity of demonic forces. By the way, that strategy has continued on. <clears throat> it's so easy to see everything is just human when, when what Paul's pointing out, first and foremost, understand that behind those false teachers are demonic spirits that are energizing them and are controlling them to do this. That happened then, it happens today. The second cause of error, Paul points out, is human. <clears throat> These false teachers, although they've been seduced, truly been seduced by deceiving spirits, he points out, are themselves intentional deceivers. They are intentional deceivers. However misleading this mask of education, learning, or religion may be, he wants them to know that these false teachers themselves do not even believe what they're teaching. They're liars. He calls them liars. <clears throat> they don't believe what they're teaching. The third and basic cause of error is moral, he says. Now he's going to actually say how all this stuff really started. The hypocritical lies of the false teachers are traced back to a time when they began to violate their own consciences. That's where it all started. That's what opened them up to deception. That's what made them easy to use by demonic forces is there came a time they, they stopped listening to their own conscience, started trying to turn down the volume, started to violate their conscience. And Paul says that they, their consciences have been made insensitive, seared like with a hot iron. <clears throat> you know, if a, nerve, if a nerve in your body is cauter, cauterized, it, is, it actually is rendered insensitive. It's burned and destroyed and rendered insensitive. This happened a lot in the Civil War when a soldier had a leg amputated or an arm amputated, they would cauterize it with something like a hot branding iron, not just to stop the bleeding, but also it killed all the nerve endings. He's talking about how these false teachers' consciences are just totally insensitive now. They're seared like with a hot branding iron. You know, Eskimos used to do something many years ago, a way in which they would kill wolves, packs of wolves. They would take some frozen, they take meat, first of all, before it's frozen, they put razor blades in the meat. They take it out on the frozen tundra, and it, the meat would quickly freeze, but the wolves could still smell it. And they would find it, the pack of wolves, and they begin to, to bite into this frozen meat. And when they bit into it, it numbed their guns be, gums because it was frozen. And then they didn't feel anything. And then as the razor blades began to go into their mouth, their own blood started to pour out. And their own blood made them eat even faster until their lifeblood poured out and they lay dead on the tundra. Now, don't remember the illustration and forget my point I'm about to make. 
And that is somebody who is constantly arguing with their conscience, is constantly ignoring its voice and suppressing it because of the decisions they want to make in their life. What happens is, is they begin to deaden their conscience to any sensitivity. And after a while, they get what they thought they wanted, and that is a quieted, dead conscience. But what they didn't realize is in doing that, they left themselves open to the next step, which is deception, and then easily used by mnemonic forces to deceive others. In fact, it's really a, a downward path from, it starts with a bit of a deaf ear and a cauterized conscience, that's where it starts, to then a deliberate lie, and then the deception of demons, and then you're used to ruin others. That's how it goes. So basically, Paul's, again, reminding us, as we talked about conscience earlier in this chapter, as he's mentioned it before, earlier in this book, that we began to tamper with the conscience. We are doing something very dangerous when we tamper with our conscience. We should do what Paul said he did in Acts 24, 16. He said, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So it's important that you don't turn a deaf ear to your conscience. It's a dangerous path you'll put yourself on. So what was this false teaching? What was the false teaching they're teaching? Well, Paul tells us exactly what they were teaching. They're teaching a false asceticism. And it was basically, they were... They were forbidding marriage, and they were forbidding eating certain foods. He says it in verse 3. By the way, their denomination today that teach the same thing. They teach these two lies, that their leaders can't be married, and there's certain foods they couldn't eat at different times in history. And Paul is quick to correct this false teaching. He says this in verse 4 and 5. Let's read it. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So he points out that marriage and certain foods, which the false teachers were forbidden, are actually gifts from God to be received by us with thanksgiving, us who know the truth and believe the truth. We receive these gifts with thanksgiving. So the point is this. He's saying basically this. How can you despise marriage let alone forbid marriage when God instituted marriage. That's Paul's point. And how could anybody command abstention from certain foods when God created them to be received with thanksgiving? So basically his point is, you know, what God has made and given to us, we are to receive it and thank him for it. You know, if God made something, think about it. God made something, called it into being by his word. And then by his word, he called it good. And as a result of our knowledge of these things, that this is created by God and good, and then we thank him for this with a good conscience, then we've actually, it's actually been sanctified twice, Paul says. See, God's creative word, first of all, sanctifies it. He made it. He made it good. He called it good. His word sanctified it. And then our prayers of gratitude for it sanctifies it. So it's like doubly sanctified for us. So the sanctification is accomplished two ways. Objectively by the word of God is subjectively by our prayer, by thanking him for it. Basically, that means that we are to celebrate and enjoy all of God's gifts, all of the gifts of the good creator. Now, obviously, there's been a fall and sin and many things have been marred. 
But ultimately, God has given us so many good gifts we need to be thankful for and receive them in gratitude. I mean, the glory of the heavens lay out under the stars and just take it in, the beauty of the mountains and the seas and the forest and the trees, the flowers, the birds, the beasts, the butterflies, and just, I mean, take a trip to the zoo and just marvel at the creativity of God, enjoy it, take it in. The joys of marriage and sex and children and parenthood and family life, extended family, friendships, the rhythm of work and rest and worship, the blessings of peace and food and clothing and shelter. Our human creativity is expressed in music and literature and painting and sculpture and drama and the skill and strengths displayed by sport, all these kinds of things. For us not to enjoy all these great gifts God has given us really is an insult to him. I mean, he actually created them. He says in chapter 6, later we'll get to that. He says in chapter 6, he gave us these things richly, all these things richly, richly to us and gave us everything for our enjoyment. Think about that. God did all this stuff because he wanted us to enjoy it all. That's why he made it all. Did you ever wonder? I mean, I think about why did God put taste in food? Aren't you glad he did? He did it because he wanted us to enjoy it. Why does God make something just, they just smell good. You smell flowers. And, why? Because he wants us to enjoy it. Why does God, why did God make all the different colors, you know, that we enjoy the beauty of the different colors of a rainbow or, or a painting? Why? Because he wants us to enjoy it. Because we have a good, good creator. And so Paul wants to clear that up real quick. Uh, with, the, you know, in contrast to the false teaching that has started to slip into Ephesus. No, you must give this up and you must give up and you can't do that and you can't do that and no to this and no to that. And Paul said, wait a second. No, that's not at all the perspective God wants us to have with all of his blessings on us. We of all people on the earth should enjoy all the gifts of God. Christians. So Paul tells Timothy this in verse 6. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren... You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus or a good minister of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. He's saying it's a, it's a sign of a good minister of Jesus Christ to lay before the people of God the truth about false doctrine that are making inroads into the church. It is a good minister who does that, who points out these things. So Timothy, you're doing good to do that. And so is any minister or pastor today who is faithful to point out false teaching of the culture that is made in inroads or false demonic deceiving spirits that are making inroads into the church and speaking to it. Then we get to verse 7. He says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he says there's little value in bodily discipline. He didn't say there's no value in it, so don't twist that verse around. There's little value. But there is great value, he says, in contrast with great value in spiritual disciplines. The value of he says spiritual disciplines have great value right now in his present life, and they will give you great value in the life to come. What does he mean by that? He means we basically discipline ourselves in godliness. We, we, we have certain disciplines that help us 
you know, really draw close to Jesus and worship and prayer and scriptures and Bible study, when we are involved in, 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 in things like evangelism and service, and we're doing all these disciplines, we actually, it benefits us now because we will experience the nearness of God, the, the joy and peace that's only available to those who walk close to God and practice these disciplines. We'll have the joy of ministry and loving others and giving our life away. So it benefits us now, he says, but also it'll benefit us in the kingdom to come. Because of the judgment seat of Christ, because we live a life that really bore much fruit, then Jesus is going to say, now I entrust you with this, and I reward you with this, and I commend you for this, and I crown you with this. All because we lived lives bearing much fruit. So Paul says, so it's of great value to discipline yourself. With spiritual disciplines, discipline yourself for godliness. Then he says this in verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. So he's basically saying is disciplining yourself spiritually. In other words, not living for yourself, but living for him. Really, first of all, is what it's all about, living this day for that day. He wants us to have that perspective, living for our great God. And this great God, he says, is worth living for because this great God actually became a man, died on the cross for our sins. He's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Those who really receive that salvation experience are those who repent and believe in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Okay, now he's going to actually transition. He's going to focus on Timothy, being the kind of leader that the church will follow. And we're about to go through six, six different, I think, important pieces of this, of what kind of leader people will follow. And this, this applies to everyone who leads and aspires to lead in the church or in ministry. These six parts of really all coming together to make an effective leader are crucial, whether or not if you're leading a small group or you're leading a men's group or women's group, you, you teach in adventure land, you lead as an elder in the church, you're, you're a pastor, you're a small group leader, you lead in youth, you lead in college, you lead in young adults, you're a life group leader, all, you know, CR, jail ministry, ESL, we could go on and on. If you are a leader, these are the qualities, these six parts matter if you want to be effective. Because he's telling Timothy, because Timothy was not being effective, and he wants Timothy to get some things right so he will be effective. Why? So this, this church can do the greatest of things, the best of things in the worst of times. So he tells Timothy these things that some, you know, there some, some of these people in your church are looking down on you because of your age, so that's not effective. But also, they're, they're not believing you for some other reasons. So Here's some things. If you just get these six things right, Timothy, you'll be effective. That's essentially what he's about to point out. So let's break them down. Here's the six things. Anyone who aspires to lead or who is leading needs to have these. Here we go. Number one, you must be a good example. You must be a good example. First, Timothy 4.12. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. He was probably in his 30s, mid-30s. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. 
You must be a good example. If people are going to listen to you and follow you, Timothy, you've got to be a good example, regardless of your age. His point is this. People would not despise your youth if they could admire your example. This is always true. This is timeless. Same is true with leaders, young leaders today. Older people will not look down on your youth if they can admire your example. Your example in what kind of ways? In the way you talk, your speech, in the way you live, your behavior, your conduct, in the way you love, in the way you express faith, and in your purity. That will show yourself to be a good example. I was talking to a young pastor recently. He, he just planted a church, you know, I, I think it was about a year ago, maybe two years ago. And he was asking me, he says, I just, I can't get older people to come to my church. And the ones that do come, I can't get them to stay. And he kept talking like, and he's thinking about how can I teach better or how can I do a better meeting to get older people to stay? And he's missing the whole point of what Paul's saying right here. What older people aren't necessarily looking for is just a better meeting. They want to know that they can admire your example. They will, they will, they will cut you slack on the age. They will look down on your youthfulness if they can admire your example. This is crucial for anyone who aspires to leaders leading is we've got to be good examples if we want followers. So Paul, that's the first thing he tells Timothy, and that's the first thing that we need to, to know if we want to be effective as good leaders. All right, the second thing he tells Timothy is this. If you're going to be an effective leader, you, your teaching must be God's, not yours. Your teaching must be God's, not yours. Verse 13, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. I mean, it was taken for granted from the beginning of Christian, Christianity that preaching was supposed to be expository preaching. What does that mean? It means that all the instruction that we receive should come out of the Word of God. It should, be, it should come out of the Scripture. It should come out of some passage in the Bible. That is really what is key for us to be effective because it is the authority of the Word of God that changes people. I mean, you can have somebody that, that just tells great stories and is funny and is entertaining, and if they haven't given you the Word of God, you may laugh, you may be entertained, but you will not be changed. It is the Word of God that changes people. I mean, the way to lead people, by the way, in the church is not with your own wisdom, your own ideas, your own title, your position. That's not how you lead people in the church. You lead with the Word of God. The Word of God has authority. The Word of God has power. That's why I urge every leader in this church, make sure that you are leading whatever you're leading with the Word of God. Make sure that whatever gathering you have, make sure when we get our instructions from the Bible, it is what has the power to change. You know, human emotion will not change things. We need spiritual power for people to be changed. So he says, if a leader is young, but is careful to teach the word of God in his leading, then he can still be an effective leader. Effective leaders teach and preach and exhort and lead from the scriptures, no matter what area you're leading in in any of, our, any of the church. It's the word of God that changes people. 
Well, thirdly, Paul says this. If you want to be an effective leader, he says to Timothy, and this applies to anyone today in the church and in ministry. He says, you want to be an effective leader, you must use your spiritual gift or gifts. Verse 14. He says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now, we don't know for sure. He's talking about the elders laying hands on Timothy and there's a prophetic word given. There's a spiritual gift imparted. God still does that sort of thing today. But every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. We're told that in four different passages in the New Testament. Now, we don't know what gift Paul is referring to here in regard to Timothy. Maybe his exhortation, maybe his evangelism, teaching. It, it was something we're not sure, but Timothy knew what he's talking about. And he urges him, do not neglect this gift which is interesting that it's possible to neglect a gift. It's possible to have a gift and neglect it because he tells Timothy, don't neglect it. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he tells Timothy to fan it into flame. In other words, that gift can be developed. It might be a small spark right now, but fan it into flame, develop it. So again, you have at least one spiritual gift. You're responsible We'll help you the best we can, but you're responsible to use it and to develop it and to fan it in flame. Every believer is. Now, again, Timothy was young and inexperienced, but here's what Paul reminded him. It's interesting, three things. He said, remember this, Timothy, God called you through a prophetic word. There was a calling. And God equipped you with a spiritual gift. And God commissioned you through the laying on of hands of the elders. So there was a call, there is a gift, there is a commission. And by the way, there is a sense in which every believer, there's a sense in which every believer has a call, every believer has a gift, and every believer has a commission. And again, at the judgment seat of Christ, where every believer is going to stand before Christ and hear commendation, reward, future assignment, crowns, and also... 1 Corinthians 3 says, suffer loss for rewards, not salvation and rewards. Every believer is going to face Jesus and hear from Jesus, basically, to give an account for what you did with what I gave you. So it's so important that we realize, wait a second, he has entrusted a gift to me. I'm responsible. I'm responsible to fan it into flame. I'm responsible to put it to use. Now, we do all kinds of things in our leadership, trying to help people discover those gifts and use those gifts and get plugged in ministry. But you have to own this. You have to own it. So I encourage you, own that and say, Lord, and begin to pray and ask the Lord to help you if you don't know what it is. If you do know what it is, Lord, how do I fan this into flame? So if you're going to be an effective Christian leader, Paul says you must use your spiritual gift. All right, fourthly, Paul says if you're going to be an effective Christian leader, your growth must be evident. Your growth must be evident to other people. Here's what he says in verse 15. Take pains with these things to be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. So Timothy's constant growth, Paul says, must be evident to others if you're going to be effective in leading them. People should be able to observe not only what we are, but what we're becoming. They should notice that there's, we, they see growth in their leaders. Why is that important? It's important because spiritual leadership is not pushing, it's pulling. What do I mean by that? 
There's a sense when a leader is growing in his passion for the Son of God, his compassion for people, his pursuit of holiness, as that leader pushes forward just for his own, you know, running after Jesus, it's like a vacuum is forming behind him that pulls other people along. That really is how Christian leadership works. It's not you push them because you can't push them to go where you haven't gone. And so Paul's telling Timothy, they got to see your growth. They got to see that you are serious about the stuff you're talking about, that you're doing it, that you're growing it, that you want them to follow you. So if you're going to be an effective Christian leader, then your growth must be evident to others around you. All right, there's a fifth thing that Paul says to Timothy if he's going to be effective in Christian leadership. He says this, you must carefully watch yourself and your teaching. You must watch yourself and your teaching. He says in verse 16, he says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Okay, let's just unpack that a little bit. First of all, he says, Timothy, you need to keep a close eye on two things. First of all, keep, keep an eye on yourself. Pay attention to yourself, your character, your conduct. And secondly, watch your doctrine, your teaching. Be careful with that because it impacts other people. So he's saying you don't need to be engrossed in one and forget the other. You know, don't, don't neglect your own personal spiritual life and just think about ministry. And don't just think about ministry and forget about your personal spiritual life. They're both important. See, it's real easy, I think, sometimes in, in ministry and leadership, no matter what you're leading, it's easy to be inconsistent in this. It's easy sometimes to be so busy in the Lord's work that we forget the Lord, you know. And, when, and that's where all ministry flows. Or to be so concerned of the welfare of other people, we forget about how we're doing and making sure we're developing ourselves. Again, I want you just to imagine yourself as a kind of a tank, a tank that has a reservoir in it. And on the top of the tank, you have inflow. And on the bottom of the tank, you have outflow. You've got to make sure you have inflow coming in. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to make sure you're spending time with the Lord. You're making sure you're in the Word, you're in prayer, you're in worship. Make sure you're in fellowship. You've got accountability and support. You're making sure you're spiritually healthy. You know, you, you make sure you're physically healthy, taking care of your body and, and eating right and sleeping and exercising, all these things. So you've got inflow that determines the reservoir. And then you have outflow. You give to other people outflow. What you can't do is cut off your inflow for the outflow. Because then the reservoir just goes down and down and down until finally you have nothing to give. And also you can't make, you just have nothing, cut, cut off your outflow and just do inflow, inflow, you know, and then you just kind of have spiritual constipation. That's not even in my notes. I'm just throwing that out there. I probably would have taken it out had I put it in there, okay? Okay, so we got to make sure we're taking care of ourselves and we're, and we're also doing ministry. It matters that we do both. He says, the result of paying close attention to yourself and your teaching is that he says, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Because we know clearly Paul has told us many times 
in the scriptures that self-salvation is not possible. Paul has been clear in several passages repeatedly to insist that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. He's been very clear about this. So is he contradicting himself right now? Of course not. Salvation always and everywhere originates not in us. It always originates in the grace and mercy of God, always. Nevertheless, the reality of our salvation is it has to be demonstrated in good works of love. That's what several scriptures tell us. And let's just look at these. Like Philippians 2.12, it talks about work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what is he talking about in verses like that? Do we earn salvation through our works? No. He's talking about the fact that because you're saved, this will be the evidence of your salvation. You will live differently. You will have good works. It will show it to be true. If you don't have that, you should wonder if you've got, if you have salvation. Paul makes that clear. Let's look at a couple passages where he talks about that. Colossians 1, verse 22 and 23. He says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Beautiful, but we've got to keep reading. Holy and blameless beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Again, perseverance does not merit salvation. Perseverance does not earn salvation, but it is the ultimate evidence of our salvation. He says it again in Hebrews 3.14. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. In other words, the Christian race that you're running, you must finish it. You must finish this race. So Paul's telling Timothy the result of paying, paying close attention to himself and his teaching is that it ensures his salvation and those who hear him. Now, how could he actually, how could he do that? How can he do that with those who hear him? Well, again, we need to make sure we understand New Testament language because oftentimes the New Testament attributes salvation to the evangelist, even though, you know, because they're preaching the gospel, even though it's God who saves. For example, here's what Jesus tells Paul as Paul gives his testimony, what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus when he encountered the resurrected Christ. Paul recounts his, this uh, story, this time in Acts 26, verse 18. He says, Jesus said this to him, that he sends them to the Gentiles to do what? To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And also, Paul said that he became all things to all men in order that by all means, possible means, he might save some. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. Now, of course, Paul didn't directly save anybody. But Paul is giving them the gospel. God is the one saving them. But this language, this is dramatic language ascribing to the evangelist this saving act, even though, of course, the evangelist knows the scriptures are clear that God is the only one who saves, but he's using the evangelist to preach the gospel. Now, there's one more important principle that Timothy must understand and apply if he's going to be an effective leader. 
And if we're going to be effective leaders, we've got to get this one down too. This is really important. And this goes really into the first couple of verses of chapter 5. By the way, the chapter divisions in the New Testament are not in the inspired text. They're put in later to try to help us find our place. Okay, I, I think it's probably an unfortunate chapter division, but let's get the next two verses because the flow still follows what Paul's talking about. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, he's talking about the sixth thing we must, must be able to do to be effective leaders is you must be wise in your relationships. Let's read what he says. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, he says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Again, even though Timothy is comparatively a young man, he's going to be responsible. He's responsible to a congregation that has both men and women, young and old, in it. And Paul wants him to know if he's going to be effective to lead them, he must know how to wisely relate to each different person. He starts. He starts with the olders, older people. He says. He says when it's your, when it's time to admonish somebody who's older, Timothy. Older than you, make sure that you give these senior members of the congregation the respect that's due their age and the affection that is due to parents. He says, treat older men like fathers and treat older women like mothers. And how do you treat young men? Treat them like brothers. In other words, don't be condescending to them. Treat them like a brother. How do you treat younger women? Treat them like sisters. Although use sensible restraint and absolute purity, he points out. Don't take advantage of those situations. So effective leaders basically don't treat everybody the same. They're wise in, in, in their relationships. So he says that effective leaders toward elders, they treat them with respect, affection, and gentleness. Those in their own generation with equality. Those of the opposite sex with self-control and purity. And the whole idea of all ages and all sexes with a love that binds us together like a family. This isn't a corporation. This is a family. So there's so much wisdom packed here in how to be effective in church leadership in this one chapter and leading into chapter 5, of course especially for anyone who's young in leadership, but for anyone in leadership, these principles apply. And again, Grace Community Church, I am convinced, has been built to do the best of things in the worst of times. And by the way, things are going to get worse out there, but better in here. But in order for us to accomplish that, we, we, we need more and more effective leaders in our church in every area of ministry, in adventure land, in youth, in college, in young adults, in life groups, on the mission field, in men's ministry, women's ministry, ESL, jail ministry, CR, Embrace Grace. I could go on and on and on. We need more effective leadership who lead like we just saw Paul describe the kind of leaders that are effective, have those kind of traits. Why do we need them? Because that's the only way we'll be able to do the best of things in the worst of times is to have leaders that lead like that. That means, again, let me just review before we close, that means we lead, need leaders who understand that you must, number one, be a good example, 
Number two, your teaching must be God's, not yours. You must use your spiritual gift. Number three, number four, your growth must be evident to those around you. Number five, you must be careful to watch yourself and your teaching. And number six, six, you must be wise in your relationships. May God grant us more leaders like that. Amen? Amen. So we can do the best of things in the worst of times. Let's stand for prayer. Those of you that need specific prayer, at the end we'll have some leader couples down here. Be glad to pray for whatever your need is. Also, if you have a question for our staff, we have Connection Coffee in this corner here. There'll be some staff glad to answer any questions. And also, if this is your first time before you take off, I'd love to meet you up here in this corner. And this is Grace Cafe. So even though you're thinking, let's just go home, stop by and make some friends and have lunch with us. We'd love to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've got a great plan still for the future of grace. We thank you for all you've done. We praise you for it. We're, we're truly thankful. But Lord, we're asking for more. We're asking you to do more in this region and more around the world through this body of believers called Grace Community Church of Arlington. Lord, you raise up more effective leaders of all ages, Lord, that will be able to minister and lead in all these different ministries and continue to pass that on and on to a younger generation. Help us do that, Lord, and help us really accomplish the best of things in these days that seem like the worst of times increasingly. Strengthen us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.